Good morning, good evening. Welcome all to the 2021 annual Charles Newhouser Memorial Lecture. My name is Winnie Yip, Acting Director of the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies for this year. It is my honor to welcome you all to this year's lecture and to introduce our honored speaker, Professor Wang Zisi. This lecture series was established over 30 years ago by the generosity of Paul Newhouser in memory of his brother, Charles Newhouser. We're honored that Paul, his wife Mary, and many of their family and friends are in attendance tonight. We extend our warmest welcome to them, as well as our sincere gratitude for their support over the years. Charles was a senior intelligence analyst with the Central Intelligence Agency for more than 20 years, during which time he spent a year in residence at Harvard's Center for Chinese for East Asians uh, Research from 1967 to 19, 1966 to 1967. As a CIA officer, Charles' research at Harvard examined the most pressing question of China's contemporary situation. Caused the Cultural Revolution. I'm unsure whether he ultimately found a satisfying answer to this complex puzzle, but his time at Harvard highlights how pressing questions for policymakers can find answers in the academy and vice versa. This lecture was founded thanks to the generous support of the Newhouser family to continue Charles' legacy of combining government service with scholarship. The series intends to bridge the world of academia and practitioner and serve as a connection between the university and leaders in government or think tanks. Past speakers include individuals such as Samantha Powell, Susan Thornton, Kevin Rudd, Susan Shirk, and Thomas Christensen, among others. Today, I'm very honored to introduce our first speaker at this series, from China, Professor Wang. Professor Wang is a professor in the School of International Studies and president of the Institute of International and Strategic Studies at Peking University, and formerly the director of the Institute of American Studies at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Professor Wang has held numerous academic posts around the world including the University of Oxford, UC Berkeley, Clement McKinnon College, the University of Michigan and Princeton. Beyond the academy, he was a founding member of the Pacific Council on International Policy in Los Angeles and has held posts at the Asia Society and the Brookings Institution. I can think of no better individual than Professor Wang to present today's lecture his unique experience bridging the academia and think tanks across China and the US ideally situate himself to bring nuance, detail, and an analytical eye to his observation of the world's most important relationship. At a time of heightened animosity in US-China relations, Professor Wang adds an alternative voice of thoughtful analysis. His lecture today asks a question that I'm sure will shape our generation. China and America, can the two orders co-evolve in peace? Without further ado, I would like to turn the stage to Professor Wang. And before I do that, I'd like to remind you that if you have questions, please type it in the um, Q&A box 
and we'll get to that once after Professor Wang gives his lecture. Over to you, Professor Wang, and welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Yip. Uh, I'm very glad to go back to Harvard, uh, not physically, but I'm online and I'm happy with the environment here in Beijing. The weather is fine. Uh, and this is Beijing morning, eight o'clock in the morning. So I hope everyone enjoys yourself uh, in the evening. Uh, and I think my lecture was invited first by Esther Vogel. Uh, I see him as my mentor and my uh, role model. Uh, so he invited me several months ago and I agreed uh, to talk to Harvard uh, Fairbank Center. So without further ado, I uh, get back to my, get, get to my lecture notes and I have my slides. Uh, can you see it? Can you see my slides? Uh, no, not, not yet. Ah, yes. Yes. With okay, good, great. So as Professor Yip just mentioned, the topic, my topic, uh, the topic I, uh, I am going to give today is China and America. Can the two orders co-evolve in peace? What are the two orders? I will give you an answer later on, but first I uh, have my introduction. That is, uh, the future uh, of world order is likely to be featured by an intensifying strategic competition between the People's Republic of China and the United States. In 2019, the U.S. economy took 24% of the global GDP in total, and China's economy took 16%. Together, they accounted for over 40% of the global economy. No other country's economic size would match either of them in the foreseeable future. It is estimated that China's GDP this year will take more than 71% of Americans. In comparison, during the heydays of the Cold War in the 1980s, the economic output of the Soviet Union was lower than one third of the US economy. The US-China power race will be more enduring, more wide ranging and more intense than the Cold War. The Biden administration's in interim national security strategic guidance released in March this year asserts that China, quote, is the only competitor potentially capable of combining its economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to mount a sustained challenge to a stable and open international system, unquote. This statement echoed the Trump administration's approach to China. In China, uh, 
It is a conventional wisdom that the United States is the greatest external challenge to China's national security, sovereignty, and internal stability. These mutual images and mutual perceptions will persist for many years to come. The central question, therefore, is not whether the US-China strategic competition has taken shape. I'm sure it has, but whether the two countries can find a way to avoid a deadly engagement that may end up with a catastrophic confrontation. The first part of my speech will discuss different interpretations of the China-US discord. In China, the most popular interpretation of the downward spiral of China-US relations in the past few years is the narrowing power gap between the two giants. Most Chinese observers believe that the United States desires to keep itself as the dominant global power, fearing and being jealous of China, which is rising rapidly to replace America's primacy. This is understandably the simple iron logic of power that promotes, uh, that prompts the United States to try to contain China in every possible way. Particularly since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, China has been more confident in seeing itself as a growing power and the US as a declining power. China has treated the uh, coronavirus pandemic much more successfully than America. China's GDP grew by 2.3% in, in 2020, and the US GDP last year decreased by 3.5%. China has enjoyed political stability for, the, for decades and the Communist Party of China, or what we call CPC, has consolidated its leadership since the 18th Party Congress in 2012, when Xi Jinping was elected General Secretary. In contrast, America's 2020 presidential election was uh, uh, unprecedentedly chaotic and its, and its result controversial. Shocking stories in America, such as race-based murders, school shootings, store looting, lootings, and police brutality are reported every day by China's official media. Indeed, recent developments seem to tilt the power balance further toward China and away from America. And America's image in the world has been badly tainted. American reactions to China's ascendancy, uh, ascendancy uh, tend to reinforce the notion that the ways with China is basically about power scale and that China is gaining the upper hand. As President Joe Biden stated in his first press conference, China has, quote, an overall goal to become the leading country in the world the wealthiest country in the world and the most powerful country in the world. That's not happen, that's not going to happen on my watch because the United States is 
going to continue to grow and expand, unquote. Tom Friedman, a renowned New York Times uh, columnist, wrote an op-ed in March this year entitled, China doesn't respect US, uh, us, China does not respect us anymore for good reason. He referred to Beijing's ambitious 14th five-year plan and America's inadequate infrastructure and education to support the argument. In comparison, China's anticipation of its power and position is full of pride and self-assurance. President Xi Jinping proclaimed in January this year that time and momentum are on China's side, unquote. Xi remarked last month that China's younger generations now can treat the world on an equal footing. Yang Jiezhi, a CPC Politburo member and a foreign policy decision maker, told his US counterparts in Alaska on March 18th, just last month, that, quote, the United States does not have the qualification to speak to China from a position of strength, unquote. Most Chinese are convinced that the United States will never allow China to support its power status, no matter who is running the White House. And therefore, they must cast away illusions and prepare to struggle. Another interpretation of the US-China schism points to the different ideologies and political systems of the two countries. It is widely perceived in China that regardless of China's power status and level of economic development, the Americans have always attempted to undermine the Communist Party leadership by promoting Western-style democracy and human rights. Some Chinese, however, asked the United States to drop what they call the Cold War mentality that exaggerates ideological disparity and to look at the commonalities of the two countries, especially the shared economic interests. However, this mainstream thinking in China contends that US pressures on China to change its political system and values are simply camouflaged policy tools to stop China from growing up and to maintain US hegemony. Some other interpretations go deeply into the domestic factors in both countries or broadly against a global backup, backdrop. In the last decade also, China has made successful efforts to tighten societal controls through new uh, legal frameworks and burgeoning technologies. Its political education for loving the Communist Party and the state penetrates into every cell of society. Those Chinese in their 40s and younger have little sense of the difficult years before they were born. The younger generations in urban areas tend to be more patriotic than their parents as they compare 
the present-day China's infrastructure and material life favorably, favorably with other countries. Many analysts illustrate political in, uh, ineptitudes, economic inequalities, ethnic divisions, economic uh, stagnation, and moral uh, decadence that have plagued the United States and other Western democracies. A number of those countries that used to emulate Western models after the Cold War are not in good shape nowadays. Afghanistan and Iraq, which the US troops liberated from tyranny, are suffering poverty and uh, devastation. In Chinese eyes, developments in China and the world give them enough justifications to squarely confront US pressures with triumphalism. How to deal with China is bound to be a controversial issue in US domestic politics. In 2020, Donald Trump accused China of spreading the coronavirus, referring to the disease at the so-called China virus. The suspicion that Beijing misinformed the world of the origin of the disease has injured. American citizens are increasingly concerned about a bunch of perennial problems connected to China, including trade imbalance, intellectual property rights, cybersecurity, technology transfer, illegal Chinese immigrants in America, and the alleged spy cases. China's image in America reportedly has reached a record low. On top of these problems, identity politics in America works against harmony between the two peoples. An alarming level of racially motivated violence and other hate incidents against people of Asian origin has been reported lately in America. It is suspected that this phenomenon is related to the worsening relationship between China and America. One unique characteristic in China-US interaction is the presence of 5 million ethnic Chinese population in America today, of whom over 2 million were born in China. Prior to 2020, American universities and colleges hosted nearly 400,000 students coming from the Chinese mainland. While US-China engagement was booming, these Chinese communities were viewed as a bridge or glue between the two countries. However, when the bilateral ties are strained, their treatment and identity may become a source of friction. Generational changes matter too in America's attitude toward China. Older generation Americans tend to see their Chinese peers as students or junior partners eager to learn from American experiences. Witnessing an increasing assertive China in front of them, younger Americans may be less patronizing and in a way less 
sympathetic toward China. As a result, the younger generations in both nations will hold a sharpened consciousness of being peer competitors. In the second part of my lecture, I will present my analysis of what are the major concerns in China about America. The combination of, of all the above factors I discussed, especially domestic dynamics of both China and the United States, produced the recent uh, deterioration of China-US relations. Most of the time in modern history, it was changes in China's internal politics, including those of Taiwan, that caused crucial twists and turns in the bilateral relationship. In Beijing's eyes, it is US interference in China's internal affairs aimed at changing its political system and undermining the Commons leadership that has posed the clear and present danger. The CPC's coming to national power in 1949 wiped out U.S. political, economic, and cultural presence in the Chinese mainland. In response to Washington's actions of containing and isolating China, Beijing forged a staunch ally with Moscow. Immediately after China's participation in the Korean War in 1950, the CPC waged an ideological campaign against the alleged mindsets of poor America, fearing America, and worshiping America in Chinese, Qinmei, Kongmei, Chongmei, among educated Chinese. Soviet leader Khrushchev's speech that denounced Stalin in 1956 triggered anti-communist riots in Poland and Hungary. The Western countries' support of the rebellions alerted the Chinese leadership. A constant theme on the CPC's stop agenda, uh, top agenda in the 1950s to 1970s was guiding against peaceful evolution, or Yanbian, a catchphrase for Western-type capitalism and democratization. China's dramatic political transformation in the late 1970s made it possible for the warning, warming of US-China relations. Commercial activities and societal communication with America boomed in the 1980s. The closer ties, however, also bred Chinese suspicions that Americans intended to sow seeds in China aimed at toppling the CPC leadership. American involvement in the Tiananmen demonstrations in, a, in May 1989, as well as the Western sanctions against Beijing after June 4, 1989, reconfirmed the CPC's apprehensions that the United States was the greatest threat to China's national security or internal security. In the 1990s, the political movement in Taiwan demanding uh, separation from the mainland gained drastic momentum. 
1995, Taiwan's leader Li Denghui was issued a U.S. visa to visit Cornell University, where he gave a political speech that irritated Beijing. In reaction, China conducted military exercises near Taiwan, and Washington sent two aircraft carrier battle groups to monitor Chinese military uh, actions. This political and military crisis projected America's image in China as the major stumbling block to China's national unification. Beijing's attitude toward Taiwan hardened again since, 19, uh, since 2016, when Tsai Ing-wen took power in Taipei. China has steadily mounted political and military pressures on Taiwan to deter the DPP from making moves toward the dual secession. The strengthened US-Taiwan ties can only increase Beijing's distrust of US intentions. Since the late 1990s, the CPC has encountered numerous domestic political challenges. And the United States has always been uncovered as a principal actor, instigating turmoil against the communist leadership. Beginning in 1999, uh, after Beijing cracked down Falun Gong, its leaders and some followers then escaped to America and established a stronghold and the U.S. Congress denounced China's persecution of Falun Gong practitioners. The riot in Lhasa, Tibet, in March 2008, was seen by the PRC as the result of the long-term support of the U.S. to the Tibetan separatists living abroad led by the Dalai Lama. In 2007, U.S. Congress bestowed its highest civilian honor on the Dalai Lama. U.S. presidents met with the Dalai Lama 20 times from 1991 to 2014. In December 2018, President Donald Trump enacted a law that requires the Department of, Department of State to punish Chinese officials who bar Americans from going freely to Tibet. Beijing charged that the violent riots in Xinjiang in July 2009 was planned and organized from abroad and that Washington had been a black hand behind the, the unrests. In 2019, Americans accused Beijing of su suppressing Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities and detaining one million people in camps in the Xinjiang region. The US Congress approved the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2019. Last month, the Biden administration's Department of State labeled China's actions in Xinjiang as genocide and sanctioned Chinese agencies and officials in charge of Xinjiang's security. 
In reaction to Beijing's decision to reform the Hong Kong electoral uh, system, a series of street protests, often called the Occupy Central Movement in Hong Kong, happened in 2014. Beijing believed that the US helped stage the protests. The Hong Kong human rights riots and the, right, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act of 2019, signed by President Trump, authorized sanctions on PRC and Hong Kong officials. On March uh, 17 this year, just one day ahead of the high, the high level China-US meeting after Biden came to, white, to the White House. The US Secretary, uh, the US sanctioned 24 high-ranking PRC and Hong Kong officials related to the decision on draft uh, the Hong Kong uh, national security law. The US has given consistent support to China's, China's political dissension and hosted a number of Chinese dissidents. It is widely believed in China that American politicians pushed the Norwegian uh, Nobel Committee to award the Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo in 2010. A five-prong pattern can be identified in China's response to US interference in its domestic affairs. First, all of the above cases involve the PRC citizen or group who was in one way or another backed by the United States. These people were branded as America's stooge, stooges and political fools. Second, none of these cases is seen in China as accidental or isolated. Rather, all of them were in the Chinese eyes part of an integrated US strategy to westernize and split up China, or in Chinese language, Xihua and Fenhua. Third, the PRC government and officials and official media would not openly acknowledge the distinctions between the US government's executive branch, the Congress, media and NGOs. They are viewed as reinforcing each other in well-planned, well-organized and, and ill-intentional, ill-intentioned actions against China. Fourth, the reactions to US interference have not confined to rhetorical protests only. Increasingly in recent years, China has taken measures to tighten control over relevant people and information interflow, and has sanctioned Americans who are engaged in activities regarded as anti-China. First, China's concerns in international affairs have focused on US schemes to support current revolutions in former states of the Soviet bloc, riots in de developing countries 
where the governments are labeled autocracies and movements like the Arab Spring in the Middle East. Beijing has offered generous assistance to governments around the world who have the resolve to fight against Western attempts to change their political institutions. President Xi Jinping emphasized in 2017 that, quote, safeguarding national political security, especially security of the political power and system, should be put in the first place, unquote. The current geopolitical and diplomatic issues concerning China-US relations, like those related to the South China Sea, Russia, North Korea, Syria, and the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, should be seen in light of their connection with China's concerns about political security at home. China's vigilance against US interference has contributed to a comprehensive long-term strategy to safe, safeguard the CPC leadership. This strategy in the last decade has benefited itself in passing and enforcing a number of laws and policies aimed at restricting Americans and other foreigners' activities in China that are seen as harmful to CPC legitimacy and authority. China has also greatly strengthened its political education and propaganda work. These efforts will serve as part of the China-US strategic competition on the global stage. The third part of my lecture will focus on what I call relationship between two orders. In my analysis, the China-US relationship in essence is a relationship between two orders. They are China's internal order maintained by the Communist Party and the international order the US wants to lead and sustain. Until the worsening of the relationship around 2017, Beijing and Washington maintained an undiscernible or even unconscious understanding. That is, the United States would not openly attempt to destabilize China's internal order. In turn, China would not intentionally seek to weaken the international order at the expense of US interests. In the US-China joint statement in November 2009, remember 10 years ago, 12 years ago, quote, the United States iterated that it welcomes a strong, prosperous, and successful China that plays a great, greater role in world affairs, unquote. After the normalization of China-US relations, the, the consecutive U.S. administrations until Trump made similar statements to assure China. In the reform and opening era, China modified its attitude toward the international order from advocating the establishment of a new international order to 
being a constructor and contributor to the existing international order. Foreign Ministry, Foreign Minister Wang Yi in 2015 declared that, quote, China is a staunch defender of the current international order, unquote. While seeking to develop the order in a more and just, in a more just and reasonable direction. With this mutual understanding, China and America tremendously expanded their commercial ties and humanitarian exchanges. They also coordinated and cooperated on various global issues including notably financial stability, counterterrorism, and climate change. However, domestic politics has changed rather dramatically in both countries in recent years, affecting the relationship between the two orders. The Trump administration not only launched a trade war with China and accused China of spreading the coronavirus, but apparently attempted to destabilize China's internal order. In October last year, U.S. Secretary of State uh, uh, Mike, Michael Pompeo stated that it was the Communist Party, not the people of China, that the world would confront. Many U.S. officials and members of Congress now seem to concur with Pompeo's approach. On the part of China, Wang Yi denounced the United States as becoming the biggest disruptor of the contemporary international order in December last year. Yang Jieshi told American, uh, told Anthony uh, Blinken during their meeting in Alaska that Quote, most countries in the world do not recognize that U.S. values represent the international value, unquote. When the CPC is celebrating its 100 years anniversary, anniversary this year, the Biden administration is prepared to take an initiative to consolidate a coalition of democracies, which is aimed at reigning in China's ideological influences and power rejections, projections in the world. The interaction between Beijing and Washington is moving into a direction in which the US is determined to weaken the Communist Party leadership in China, whereas China is more defiant against the US-led global institutions and the Western values. The prospect of a vicious cycle is in China relations looms larger. Looking ahead, China and the United States will have to treat each other on the basis of two fundamental realities. One is the reality of China. By raising the standard of living and fostering patriotism, among other factors, the CPC, the, the Communist Party, enjoys immense popularity among the Chinese people. 
its power grip, its grip to power is unshakable. Despite pitfalls and vulnerabilities ahead, the CPC's rule looks infinite. Increased external pressures on China to change its political structure are likely to be futile and even backfire. These pressures may help enhance unity around the Communist Party and inflame anti-Western feelings. Demands and the desires of the Chinese people rather than those of other nations will eventually push China's progress in the right direction. The other reality is the reality of America. The United States will remain the most powerful actor in shaping the future of world order. America's problems are transparent. In fact, however, America's real strength lies in its civil society resilience, uh, diversity, and capabilities of innovation. Not many countries would like to see the United States depart from their region and leave a power vacuum behind. President Biden's declaration that America is back properly ignited more expectation than fear from politicians and business leaders in other continents. These two realities, the realities of China and the reality of the United States, should define the spirit of the China-US strategic competition. Here apply the Chinese official watchwords of mutual respect in China-US ties. That is, America should respect China's own choice of internal order, along with its great achievements in lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty within such a short period of time. China should respect America's international role empowered but circumscribed by the existing world order, as well as its capacity to continuously attract foreign capital and talents into the country. Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan, before they took uh, important positions in the Biden administration, co-authored a sobering essay in Foreign Affairs magazine entitled, Competition Without Catastrophe, How America Can Both Challenge and Coexist with China. They cautioned against two kinds of wishful thinking either assuming U.S. engagement with China would bring about changes to its political system, or assuming that competition would force China to capitalize. Uh, uh, capitulate or collapse. They also rejected an application of the Cold War logic to U.S.-China competition. Finally, what should be the right way for China and America to compete? In his book on China, Henry Kissinger creates a brilliant formula of co-evolution 
between China and America, which, uh, which quote, means that both countries pursue their domestic imperative, imperatives, cooperating where possible, and adjust their relations to minimize conflict, unquote. If the two countries are preoccupied with their domestic priorities, they may compete to see which government serves its people better, which country recovers sooner from the coronavirus pandemic and makes its citizens healthier and happier, which country is more popular in the world, and so on and so forth. This kind of competition will be benign and also severe in nature. They should refrain from competing to see which country speaks louder in attacking the other, or which country produces more formidable weapons. To prevent competition from becoming catastrophic, China and the United States should handle at least two issues with strategic, strategic vision, both of which involve China's internal order and the international order to the US liking. The first issue is Taiwan. The two countries apply different principles over the Taiwan issue, but they share a superseding common interest, peace. Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan in their co-authored article put forth a worth noting observation. Quote, Taiwan is not only a potential flashpoint, it is also the greatest unclaimed success in the history of US-Chinese relations as a result of the flexible and nuanced uh, approach generally adopted by both sides, unquote. If Washington insists on its traditional position of not supporting Taiwan independence and maintaining its one China policy, Beijing will likely keep the goal of seeking peaceful unification and uh, Beijing will uh, likely keep its, the goal of seeking peaceful unification unless conditions specified in the PRC's anti-secession law would force it to use non-military, non-peaceful means. Compared to the Taiwan issue, the issue of China-US economic competition is thornier and more overarching. The socialism with Chinese characteristics and the liberal international order promoted by the United States looked increasingly incompatible, at least at their face value. Even before the trade war triggered by the Trump administration, the pattern of their bilateral economic changes had already appeared unsustainable. However, the two countries have been so deeply intertwined, the two economies have been so deeply intertwined uh, with each other and with production, production team. Uh, the two countries, the two economies, 
the two economists have been so widely intertwined with each other and with production chains around the world that the coupling of economic and technological ties are incurring mirror losses and uncertainties. At present, China's re-emphasis of self-reliance and indigenous uh, renovation are coupled with America's rising popular populist nationalism and the Biden administration's foreign policy of the middle class, which begins with foreign economic policy. Both sides are determining tools uplift its economic competitiveness directed at the other. In reality, however, neither economy would thrive without a strong recovery of the other economy after the pandemic. So China needs to hasten its economic reform to entertain more foreign trade investment and technological knowledge and know-how, which is what the new Chinese slogan of mutual uh, circulation is all about. Embracing international economic integration will in turn support China's internal order. While resisting calls for remolding its political structure, China should abide by and adjust to international rules that will benefit its market economy, social progress, and environmental security in the long run. The United States on its part should reconsider the possible consequences of promoting the so-called liberal international order. If this order is liberal enough, shouldn't it be more inclusive and tolerant to take into consideration the interests of other nations beyond America's circle of like-minded partners and Western civilization. Failures and setbacks of its intervention in Afghanistan and the Middle East at large should provide Americans with sobering lessons. If China and the United States Fall to if China and the United States fail to manage their conflicting objectives in a co-evolution, as Kissinger proposes, the world will face the danger of precipitating into dire division, turbulence, and conflict. Both the United States and China shoulder a great responsibility to save the world for peace and stability. In summary, I have made five major arguments today. First, the China-US strategic competition will be enduring, wide-ranging, and intense. Second, among the various factors that caused the worsening of China-US relations, domestic changes in the two countries are more crucial than other factors. Third, China has always viewed US interference in its domestic affairs, especially efforts to undermine the leadership of the Communist Party 
That's the clear and present danger. China's geopolitical strategy should be understood by looking at its linkages to its primary concern of internal security. Fourth, China's internal order maintained by the Communist Party and the international order the US advocates are increasingly incompatible given the latest events and global trends. Finally, China and America should respect each other in the benign peaceful competition. While China needs to step up its economic reform to adjust to a changing world order, the United States should reflect on the so-called liberal international order and be more inclusive in its global strategy. I think uh, I'm ready to answer the qu any questions you might want to raise. Uh, and Professor Ye will, uh, Ye will, will, will chair that session. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Professor Wang, for a wonderful and insightful talk. Um, and um, we're already getting a lot of questions. Many of them started by thanking you for this talk. And I'm not going to repeat it. Um, the, the, um, all the notes that thank you. Um, here are a number of questions, and <clears throat> one question is following very closely to what you just um, ended. It's um, from Peng Yaling, who is a researcher from Yunnan University in China. Um, there are two questions that she has. What is the significance of people-to-people -people exchange between China and U.S. at this special time? And what measures can be taken to promote people-to-people -people exchange between the two countries, um, especially that you mentioned the younger generation um, that uh, have a more sharpened consciousness of being peer competitors? So I didn't hear you clearly. Oh, uh, yes. I just got a note saying that my microphone is muffled. Which, 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 which uh, I can see the, the screen. Uh, there is a question from Egypt. Uh, is, are you referring to that? Uh, no, I was. Can you no. hear me now? What else? Uh, the second one? What is China's expectation for other countries such as Canada? In this, is this one? You can answer that one first. Okay. Go ahead and answer uh, that one first. Uh, what is China's me? expectation of countries like uh, Canada? It's so co-evolution of... Uh, of the, of the two others, I, I think Canada uh, is a political and economic uh, ally of the United States. It's very close to the United States, but it has its independent foreign policy, not identical with America's. So my hope is that Canada will uh, get more independent from the U.S. approach toward China today, but I, I know the uh, thorny question uh, problem related to Huawei and this uh, uh, CFO. Uh, and that is uh, an issue to be solved between the two countries before uh, relations can really improve. Uh, but I think the U.S., the China-Canadian economic relationship is still important and I think that will continue. Thank you. Can you hear me now? Is it clearer? Yes. Uh, is, is, are you talking about the next question? Uh, uh, no. Uh, uh, from from Paul here. 
Yes, please go okay. ahead. And support okay. Uh, the question is, is uh, you said that most of the time it was changes in China internal politics that caused tension of US-China relation. But you explained that this by citing the history of US challenges to China's actions relate to sovereignty. Please explain. Uh, did you mean to suggest that uh, Beijing is primarily responsible for the downturn of the relationship? Most Americans uh, interpret changes in China's internal politics as changes within the, the Chinese leadership. I mean, I don't say and I, I don't accept the argument that China should be responsible, mainly responsible for the downturn of relationship. This is a, an act, acting reacting uh, circle, which is not very nice to either side. That is China changes domestic structure. And I think the Communist Party has consolidated its power very dramatically since the 18th Party Congress that uh, is seen in the United States as a, as a challenge to the international order because the you know, domestic politics has immense uh, implications for China's foreign policy. So this, I'm not blaming China for doing that. I think it is necessary to consolidate the, the, the party leadership and China's economic progress is going on. But it caused American concerns and reaction. And this is the, 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 uh, the problem I see. Uh, but I, as I, in, uh, I implied, I, I, I was not very surprised to see US reaction to China's internal changes. It is China's internal change that caused American anxieties, not the other way around. That is not the United States domestic politics that caused China's in, uh, reaction to the United States. Uh, so this is my academic, more scholarly interpretation rather than a political position. Okay, thank you very much, um, Professor Wang. Um, there, there are several questions that I think belong, uh, have similar um, idea. Um, one question from an anonymous, can you hear me now? Professor Wang, can you hear me now? Oh, uh, not very clearly. Not very clearly. I'm sorry about that. Um, um, uh, the next question that follow Paul here. Mm -hmm. yes. Ah, the presentation reads yes, like please. a list of grievances, both real and perceived, and compare narratives from state media sources. Uh, the criticism of the US are stated clearly here. Are there any criticism of the Chinese government and its actions that could have led to source, sourced relations with the US? That will be a more balanced presentation. I think you, if you know China, you, you will have discussions, internal discussions, and sometimes debates. Uh, of course, we have scholars have their own opinions about the relationship and about China's politics as well. But I confess that we don't engage in open debates like you do in the United States. We don't uh, go to streets to demonstrate. Uh, so 
when we are we have our complaints and we we have our our own uh, mindsets uh, we have our channels report to the leadership as to what we think about of it we think about it and sometimes they are critical sometimes they are uh, concurring with the Chinese official line and different people have different directions uh, some people are really very sympathetic to government uh, uh, official line. Some people like the so-called uh, uh, liberal-minded intellectuals, how we, what we say in Chinese, Dawei, they have their critical comments expressed in, in social media and elsewhere, but they don't take, uh, they are not taken very seriously by the government. Uh, so this is my answer. I, I cannot say, well, I don't, I agree or disagree with the government line. Uh, sometimes I agree, sometimes I have my own opinions. Uh, so it is not very, uh, in a, very uh, a pre uh, 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 appropriate for me to say whether I don't have a, I don't have an opinion, but I do have my own opinion and I have my, you know, as, as you see in my lecture notes, uh, I have my own grievances, uh, both real and perceived. That is lots of grievances about the United States, that is a grievance about uh, the situation as a, as a whole. And what I didn't say, I didn't have time to say that the, the domestic politics of both countries are reflecting global trends. Uh, there are uh, many factors that disrupt the current international order and it has its relation, its relevance to China's internal politics. Uh, Chara, I say the, 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 the next question. Professor Wang, thank you for your talk. In your lecture, you repeatedly point out ways the United States has in Beijing's view undermined China's, uh, whether through uh, supporting Tibet, condemning persecution of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, not condemning Falun Gong or other actions. Can you uh, comment on how the United States has approved, supported China's rise and prosperity through hundreds of millions of dollars in annual trade, uh, hosting nearly several hundred thousand Chinese students in the United States annually or engaging not just with opponents of the CP, CCP and also CCP leadership. Would a country that exclusively seeks to keep China down engaged in these such in these uh, such uh, prolific trade, education, uh, high-level diplomatic exchanges. My answer to this question is yes. Personally, I appreciate many American friends and universities and others who helped China uh, willingly and, and, and consciously, unlike what I just mentioned, who, whom I just mentioned, Ezra Bogan uh, and uh, my, my colleagues at Harvard University. But I appreciate that, but I, I think, you know, you have your intentions, you, you, you think these intentions are very well taken and they should be well taken, but consider China's grievances. That is, we also help the United States 
in promoting your economic growth, we sacrifice, we, we, we sell our products to the United States at a very cheap price, uh, cheaper than what we can buy in China. Well, we are, we are helping the United States. We are saving our money in your, your, your treasury um, uh, uh, bonds and so on and so forth. So this is, you, you know, bilateral relationship and so on, we are mutually beneficial to each other. That doesn't mean a lot by looking at intentions. We scholars and ordinary people often say we are well-intended. I don't deny that. But governments act on the interests of their own people and interests of their own country. That is not, uh, that is not morally uh, uh, correct or not. Uh, this, this is what they do. So I do appreciate uh, your question, and I say maybe you are well intended, but not necessarily the US government. And you may say that the CCP does this or that in your own interest, and CCP in, in the China Communist members will say we sacrifice ourselves for the promotion of US economy and world peace. So you should appreciate. Our, uh, our uh, system and, uh, uh, and our efforts. And you may not agree with that. Uh, you may say the Communist Party is there and it, 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 it acts on its own interests, not in the interests of the United States. So um, as, as scholars, we should maintain our objectivities. Uh, and at the same time, we should understand that the politics is different from daily life that is uh, not driven by moral considerations, but by uh, promoting their own interests. Professor Wang, I want to first of all apologize because uh, I was frozen, so I had to sign out. And so I'm gonna ask Dan to ask some of the questions because as I sign out, the question got lost and we're just recovering them. So Dan, please, and I'll go next. Sure. Yeah, I think one question uh, a lot of people had, Professor Wang, I'll sort of um, bring up bring a couple of different questioners together um, was about, in your view, uh, what is one concrete step that you would like to see the United States and China take to begin to get things back on track in terms of the bilateral relationship? Uh, my complaint is that the, the current atmosphere is not good, as you can understand. So my pr pr uh, proposal is that the two, two governments should sit together and face the real challenges ahead, you know, including climate change and Taiwan and, and other issues, rather than simply to put forward some principles uh, guiding the relationship. We have already had a lot of principles uh, the two countries uh, uh, identified. Uh, so when the two, two governments talk, they should deal with specific questions and the concerns of China, for instance, the, uh, about trade, uh, trade the tariffs uh, and uh, uh, the, the Chinese students uh, and their treatment and their uh, future in the United States and Americans, of course, they have their, their concerns like intellectual property rights. So I think the next step should be in-depth and concrete 
discussion between the two governments on specific issues rather than uh, saying uh, angry words about each other's intentions. So my proposal is that we, you know, uh, we support the other ones, the, the other side. It's not well intended. Uh, maybe it's not nice to to to. Uh, it's approach is not harm is not uh, conducive to the to to this country or to that country. But we should face the problems and try to solve the problems and uh, provide opportunities for peaceful evolution that is uh, for instance the Taiwan issue then the South China issue and the two militaries should sit together to create some more uh, mechanisms for crisis management. Here's a question that is related to Taiwan. Um, under what condition does China envisage bringing Taiwan under its sovereign control and over what time frame, if you would shed light on that? Uh, on the Taiwan issue, I personally am not very much worried about the future of Taiwan because it's not going to go away. Uh, of course, there are pro-independence uh, forces in Taiwan, uh, but it, it, it is not in their position to change the uh, constitution of the so-called Republic of China. So they they are they officially they still have to uh, accept the duality uh, that Taiwan is part of China uh, uh, officially and legally. Uh, they may think otherwise, and they are restrained not only by China's uh, might. Uh, uh, and pressure, but they are restrained by only also by America's position. The United States, with you know, despite its efforts to upgrade uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations, it is still sticking to the one-China policy. So I, I, I think the 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 mainland will continue to. Uh, increase its military pressures on Taiwan without making an actual 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 war against Taiwan to occupy the Taiwan island to kill people and so on and so forth. This is the last resort, as I specified in my remarks. We have the anti-secession law that we should abide by. That are we have the conditions where. Uh, uh, where peaceful means are exhausted. I don't think peaceful, ex uh, peaceful means are exhausted. We have immense uh, trade relations with Taiwan and people-to-people people -people exchanges. Although the pandemic is, is, is doing some, man, some, 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 uh, some harm to the uh, bilateral relationship. Uh, so I'm confident that Taiwan the Taiwan issue will be solved peacefully in the long run. Great, thank you. Um, here's a question. 2021 is 50th anniversary of the ping pong di diplomacy. Can China and US stage a new ping pong diplomacy to improve that relations, that their relations? Uh, could you repeat the question? Uh, and my muffled again. Yes, yes so the 100 year anniversary of the Communist Party. And what, what is the following? 
the question is: This is the 50th anniversary of the ping pong diplomacy. Ah, ah, I see. China I see. There, there are a few, a few events in Beijing, and I, I don't know whether it is happening in the United States as well. That to 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 commemorate the event. And Henry Kissinger came to China 50 years ago in in May. Uh, 50 years ago, and uh, he is still favorably uh, remembered in China. And he recently he gave a speech I read very carefully to a German uh, correspondent, uh, in which he touched upon China very carefully. I think uh, you know, we we should be more realistic, like him. That is. Uh, I looked at his memoirs and his biography. Uh, he escaped Germany uh, from uh, uh, Holocaust and so on. So he is a real realist, although he has his own political values to sustain. So my point there is that the United States and China got together, got the, you know, uh, Henry Kissinger came to China 50 years ago when China's economic developments was, economy was very poor when China human rights, you, you don't talk about human rights in China, you dis discuss politics in China 50 years ago. But now with the, the problem, as you know, in China, we have our, uh, you know, uh, many, many problems ahead and at present. But we have made great progress then, you know, as compared to 50 years ago. So realism is still important. That is regardless of China's and America's political systems, we could work together. We could promote our common interests in, in a co-evolution. Uh, I don't challenge the position that ideologies do account in the bilateral relationship. But think of two things. First of all, China has made progress. Um, despite the current atmosphere that uh, some people do not want to, uh, to, to, uh, to mention, but this is not a, uh, not a dire situation. We live well, we speak freely among friends, uh, we have our opinions and uh, we have, uh, uh, we, I, I still continue to teach at the university with my own views. So that is good. Uh, we are still hopeful, as I said in my lecture notes, uh, that the, the future of China depends on the, the willing, the, 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 the desires and demands of the Chinese people. And as a question raised, uh, the CPC enjoys immense popularity among the Chinese people. That is a fact. Uh, when I go to the countryside, I go to other provinces and I talk to com common people, they, they express their aspiration. Uh, and, and despite the criticisms, uh, you know, it is a fact. So, it's, so we have to live with this effect, uh, this fact, and and and, and go on you know, uh, with a, a vision that China will improve itself. Professor Wong, um, we we have a, a, a wonderful audience here, and we have a question from Susan Thornton at Yale Law School. Who ah. thanks you for your remarks, 
And says, uh, you said that Campbell Sullivan say Taiwan is an unspoken success. Do you agree? in military conflict in 1954, 1955, 1958, uh, and 1962, they were engaged in, in real con- uh, combat. Uh, but, but later on, when China has conducted its domestic reform, Taiwan has changed it dramatically in, 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 toward what it called democratization. The two sides maintained the peace and they enlarged their economic uh, uh, cooperation, and the United States benefited from that. So uh, if we are talking about achieving reunification, the United States is a, uh, is, is a, is a factor, uh, uh, but it is not entirely a negative factor. Uh, at least it is restraining Taiwan from being from seeking to do independence. Otherwise, the, the situation will be even even worse. So I actually agree with part of uh, Jake Sullivan's and and, uh, 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 and Kurt Campbell's view. They said even they are in sight that. The Taiwan issue, the the cooperation and the treatment of the Taiwan issue provides uh, some uh, considerations for the two countries to think about in dealing with other issues. Uh, They didn't specify what the other issues are. So that is my own view. That is not the government view. Uh, you know, I think most people are more critical of the United States approach toward Taiwan, but I have the right. Dialectic materialism. That is, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand. Great, thank you. Um, uh, there are a few. There, there are a number of young scholars in the audience also. And um, one question is: What are your suggestions for uh, young Chinese scholars studying international relation in the U.S. today? Is it worth risking our personal safety? In relation, there are other questions, which is on a more positive note. Um, what would you encourage? What can be done through the human uh, people-to-people exchange in keeping the relationship uh, and the communication open? I think, yeah, when we are talking studying international relations, I always have the question asking, ask to myself, what is our the boundary of international relations as a subject or as a discipline. I don't see any boundary, not like law or economics. So studying international politics is almost studying everything. You have to deal with climate change. You have to think about uh, diseases. You have to think about social uh, uh, and economic inequality, almost everything. So my uh, understanding of international relations today is that we should not uh, be bound 
by the traditions of studying international relations, that the state-to-state relations, power balance, and so on and so forth. I focus more on social issues and domestic politics of our various countries. I'm doing some research on, for instance, the, the internal affairs of Middle East countries. They are more interesting than uh, the international relations uh, with regard to the Middle East. So this is the foundation of studying international relations. That is society, culture, civilization, economics, law, and other things, they are more important than interstate relations. This is my understanding of the international relations as a discipline. But if we broaden the horizon to think about uh, scholarly exchanges and student exchanges between the two countries, there are people, more people are studying social uh, sciences and technology they should be welcomed by the United States to go to the United States to study. Uh, this is not a, a country to country relationship matter. This is a matter of uh, human life. Uh, I have students who study uh, political science. I have students I know who study uh, uh, natural sciences and technology. They are eager to go to the United States because the United States is technological and scientifically stronger than China, more advanced in its education. So they should have their opportunity to study in the United States. The U.S. should welcome them. And China, we should welcome U.S. students to come to China. I have several U.S. students and international students in my class. Uh, so. In, in that regard, we should be more open-minded rather than thinking about relationship per se, uh, bound by the current difficulties. Uh, I think a few, you know, future generations will be wiser in dealing with those issues. You have your uh, aspirations, uh, and I hope you will succeed. Professor Wong, we have a question from Doug Paul from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, Doug Paul says, Professor Wong's recommendations are sober and admirable. What do you think are the chances your recommendations will evolve successfully instead of descending into conflict? Uh, the, last, the last sentence, uh, what do I think? What do, you think? what do you think are the chances your recommendations will uh, evolve successfully instead of descending uh, into conflict? <laughs> I have to confess that I'm not so optimistic, but I cannot simply say this, the future is not good. So I have to say, we have to do something. I make proposals to my, to, to our governments. I have proposals to, to the uh, government agencies, but to what extent they can be accepted, it's not up to me and I'm a small potato. Uh, uh, so I hope other people will join and say more things about the bilateral relationship and make their own contributions. My, one of my complaints is that uh, with so many think tanks and the scholars in international relations, other subjects, our voices in the world are still very weak. Uh, we should say more, uh, say more meaning you, we have to study more, we have to oh, be, be, be open-minded enough, and we should have the skills to, to, to say the right things without violating what we call political correctness in both countries. And that is something we have to learn from Esther Vogel and other scholars who can speak uh, comfortably 
with Japan, with China, with the United States, with other countries. That is not easy, but I'm learning from them. Thank you, Professor Wang, very much so. Um, uh, we have limited time and um, there is a question um, by Kate Zhou. Um, her question is, uh, by destroying the golden age of Hong Kong, the change leadership is, is posting a threat to the global liberal regime, making Taiwan's peaceful solution impossible. Do you think that there are elites in China who may bring political change that would improve US-China relations in the next five years? I, I don't quite understand. You, you, could you say it again? Or oh, oh, which, which uh, you have, I have a list of uh, questions not from Douglas Hall, from uh, whom? This is the one from Kate Joe. Uh, the time is about 9.03. Can, can you hear me clearly, actually, Ben? Kate Show, ah, I heard your names many times, but we have met, not met each other. Before Mao took power, he praised the US political system of democracy, but he rejected the model and became a di dictator by uh, destroying the golden egg of Hong Kong. Uh, the change leadership is uh, post posting a threat to the global liberal regime, making Taiwan's peaceful res resolution impossible. Do you think that there are elites in China who may bring political changes that will improve US-China relations in, in, in the next five years? I think this is more of a political issue rather than a, an, a, a scholarly issue. And I, you have a, you sound you have a black and white picture that is Mao Zedong was right in the uh, in, in in the revolutionary years and China is is it is, is moving backward. Things are more complicated than that. Uh, I'm not going to make a moral judgment of what is China is doing. I'm simply proposing that uh, political changes uh, will take place in China and the United States in the next five years or longer. But I cannot predict what changes we are going to have. Uh, maybe, you know, in, next year, China will have the, the, the 20th Party Congress. Uh, uh, and I, you know, most of the people believe that uh, the current leadership will go on, will, will not have a, you know, dramatic uh, re, re, uh, uh, readjustment. But the United States, in five years, we will have a, a new administration in Washington, whether it is a Democratic or Democratic or Republican, we don't know. So I, uh, I keep my fingers crossed uh, to see good reason to good happenings in the two countries in the next five years for an improvement. But personally, I don't have great hopes 
for uh, an improvement of U.S.-China relations. Well, um, thank you very much, Professor Wang, for a um, candid uh, analysis of the very complex and moving relationship between the U.S. and China, and also um, the complexity between the international and the internal um, happenings, and also the implication of the U.S.-China relationship on the global context as well. And this is definitely a question that is um, of uh, concern of many um, people. And um, you provided us with a lot of food for thought, uh, food for thought. And uh, we hope very much that in the next few months we can continue to have this conversation and dialogue with you as uh, situations evolve. And uh, like you um, have uh, proposed, we hope we can develop some principles that the two countries can continue on a good relationship. Um, we are all committed to work together in that sense. So um, thank you very much, Professor Wang. And I also want to again thank the um, Newhouser family for your continued support of this uh, lecture so that we can have um, insightful um, conversation on how we can bring scholarship and very, very um, timely topics that are of people's concern together in the same place. Thank you for all of you who are done tonight and thank you, Professor Wang. And we apologize for a little bit of the technical glitch tonight. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Yip. And I was surprised to uh, see many old friends and new friends and uh, uh, Dr. Paul Sullen uh, Fountain. I, I didn't expect you to be here to listening to me, uh, but I and I cannot handle all the questions very successfully. I apologize for that, but I appreciate very much the opportunity to speak to all of you uh, tonight and, and this morning in China. Thank you. There are many other friends and uh, we haven't been able to cover all of the questions and not everyone has been able to raise that question, but um, definitely there are many, we have, we're happy to send you the attendees list and you will notice how many of them are there. Thank you again and, um, you. and we hope to connect uh, in the near future. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you all very much.